and if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. So while you're turning there, just kind of a recap here, because we're actually in the book of Acts normally on Sundays. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is going to cover some issues that Paul ultimately is dealing with in the church of Corinth. And he's up to this point covered all kinds of things. Um, if you think that the Bible is full of good people, you'd be wrong. The First Corinthians uh, will settle that in your mind for you pretty quick. He's dealt with everything from sexual immorality, not just any kind of immorality, but within the church, and a type that wasn't even named among you know pagans, um, and that they were proud of that. They, they're selfish. They're boastful. They're abusive uh, of the gifts. They they just they're all jacked up basically. And finally, he's addressing one final issue here, and something that uh, occurred to me as I was studying here, and you'll see this in the text, I believe, but he, he's going to address the resurrection. And it occurred to me suddenly that if they have a misperceived uh, view of the resurrection, everything else is going to be messed up. If you have a tiny view of God, Jesus is God, if you have a tiny view of God, you're going to have a tiny faith that doesn't believe the things of God, that doesn't obey the word, that doesn't follow the Lord, that worships uh, and serves uh, other things, other gods. So if you would read with me 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve, and we're going to go to 34, so hope you enjoy standing for a minute. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Wake up for your, from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You guys can be seated. We'll pray. Lord Jesus, we, we ask in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would fill us with an understanding of your word, Lord, that you would, you would use me, Lord, you would use my, my imperfect words, my um, ineloquence, Lord, all of those things, in spite of them, Lord, that you would be glorified, that your name would be magnified in this place, that you would be great. Lord, I pray that we would not leave here today without a fresh vision for your glory. Lord, that your, your spirit would move deeply within us and that we would not uh, continue to hold a view of you that is any less than true. So, Lord Jesus, fill us right now. We pray by your spirit. Amen. It was only for a moment. His mother left him in the toy department while she went to take a look at a lamp. According to her, no more than seven minutes. It was the last time she'd see her son alive. The year was 1981, the year before I was born. The boy's name was Adam Walsh. He was six years old. For 16 days, they searched in hope that they would find their son again. But that hope was soon turned to their deepest fear. Their son had been murdered. They never found his body, just some remains. But that deep suffering that they endured, they turned into hope. If you guys aren't familiar, his father, John Walsh, is his name. He is the host of America's Most Wanted. He spent the last roughly 30 years bringing to justice criminals like the man who killed his son. It took him almost 30 years to find that man. And by that time, the man had already died. But he turned that suffering into hope. He turned it into something good. And perhaps your response to something like that, it wouldn't be as hopeful. Perhaps you would, you would be devastated to the point of there would be no recovery. But maybe you've never endured suffering that's so tragic that you would lose hope. But maybe you wouldn't have to endure something that tragic to lose hope. We've, we've all been affected by the sin of this world. And we've, been, we've also affected others by that sin. But our greatest need, what do you suppose that is? Our greatest need is for redemption, for forgiveness, for cleansing of that sin that devastates everything around us. We see the effects of it all over the place. We see, we see it in things like a young six-year-old boy being murdered. We know that our world is, is messed up. We know that there are problems. And yet, we put so much hope in 
something so messed up and so temporal. As I said, our greatest need is for redemption, that we would be restored from our fallen condition. The good news is that Jesus has done this. The sad news is we don't always live like this is true. When trials come and difficulties come down our way, we will only overcome if we have a fixed gaze with eternity in focus in Jesus. With Jesus at the forefront, we have hope. As we look at our text today, the main thing I want you guys to come away with this morning is that because Jesus has risen from the dead, we have hope in this life and in the next. But, as I said before, we tend to substitute that hope for something less, something, something not hope at all. And that is the, the thing that we see that was wrong here, as I mentioned before, in the Corinthian church. Their view of Jesus had been skewed. There were people going around and they were proclaiming that there is no resurrection of the dead. Sure, Jesus rose from the dead, but other than that, there is no resurrection. And as we take a look at our text, we're going to see that, that Paul says this is absolutely ridiculous. And perhaps some of you are here today and you're, you're not, you don't really struggle with that. You're like, sure, yeah, I believe there's a resurrection from the dead. I believe that will be me someday. But do you actually believe it? Does it really make a difference? Because if you believe that, it should change the way you live entirely. Not that you're doing something to earn some sort of uh, prowess or right or salvation, but rather that it changes the way that your life is lived out because you realize that this life is not the end, that there is more, and that Jesus is my ultimate prize. And I have eternity set before me. I need to be living with eternity in mind. So, because Jesus has risen from the dead, because there is a resurrection of the dead, we have hope now and we have hope for eternity. So if we look at our text there again, we have hope in this life and in the life to come because in Christ we have victory over sin. We have hope in this life and the life to come because in Christ we have victory over sin. We read there in verse 12 again. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are above all most to be pitied. Question for you, how do we have victory over sin? We see that there in our text. That apart from Jesus Christ, here's your answer, we have no victory. Apart from his resurrection, we have no victory. 
You guys have probably heard it said, C.S. Lewis said that Jesus, you cannot say that he was a good man or a good moral teacher. Because if you read the things that Jesus said, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He made claims, such things as eat my body, drink my blood, follow me, give up everything you have. He made, he made bold statements that on, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and on the third day he would be raised again. They didn't understand it. But no good man, no moral person, makes such claims and remains good. Because if it's not true, then he's a liar or he's crazy. But if it is true, then he is Lord. And we have every reason to heed what he has to say because he knows what awaits us. And we don't. Everybody wants to know what is in this next life. What is to come? And we don't have any really idea apart from Jesus coming and telling us. Yeah, we have stories. We have accounts. I I was talking with someone recently. We have accounts of people saying, I died and uh, on the operating table, they revived me. And I was able to to see for a moment that white tunnel of light. Or I had a feeling of euphoria and I just knew that I was okay. What's often missing from those, those claims is... I didn't see Jesus. They, they never say that. If they say they saw God, they say it was just sort of a, a, an impression that I got. And we never hear them say, and I know it was heaven because I have my faith in Jesus Christ. And he was the first one to rise from the dead and remain forever. And he is the one who provides my resurrection and my hope. And so that's how I know I'm going to heaven. We never hear those things. But... According to Paul here, if we have no hope of resurrection, then Jesus is not raised either. And if Jesus isn't raised, this changes everything. You guys may as well go home. There's got to be something on TV that's, that's better than this. There's got to be something better to do, something more important. Because if Jesus isn't raised, if all he did was die, as some say, and set a good example, then we are still in our sin. We have no victory over sin apart from Jesus. And sure, some will say, well, well we, have, we have the law, we have the Ten Commandments. We, we could obey those things and we could, we could be righteous enough. No, if, if you know what Scripture says, if you read some of Paul's other writings, like Romans, it says we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God It says that there is none who does good. No, not one. There is none righteous. You know, the first time I read that, everything within me, and I bet in you too, goes, well, I disagree with that. I'm pretty good. I disagree with that. I've met some really good people. Well, what about these people who are so sincere in their faith, the Mother Teresas of the world? What about the other faiths where they're really nice, they're really generous, they give of themselves, they, they love their families. They're all about family. It doesn't matter. Because works-based righteousness is no righteousness at all. Self-righteousness, it says, is as filthy rags before God. 
because his righteousness is the standard and we can never attain to that standard. And that is why we have Jesus, correct? Can can I get an amen on that? All right, good. You're with me. Okay. So if Jesus did not rise, then we are still in our sin. But if he is risen, we have victory over sin. And some of you today, you need to hear that because your inclination, our inclination, is to to works-based righteousness. We want some credit for it ourselves. We also just assume that, well, in order to be holy and acceptable, I need to be good enough. And so we, we get off track, and we're like a train without a track then, and we're just chugging along in the dirt, going nowhere. But we, we, we're doing a lot, but we're not, we're not attaining anything. Wheels are spinning, but nothing's happening. Lights are on, but no one's home. We need to remember that our righteousness is only in Christ, that our victory is only because He is risen. This is absolutely crucial. There are plenty of other faiths that we've talked about. I've listed some, some implicitly, that will claim righteousness, that will claim a, a works uh, righteousness. All of their leaders, though, are dead and still buried. Jesus is the only one who he claimed something and then he did that something. You, if you guys remember, you remember the Waco, Texas incident with David Koresh? Back in like 1993, I was uh, 11 years old, I think. (laughs) I remember watching that on TV as the building burned down. And I remember thinking, all of these people followed this man who claimed to have life, who claimed to be the one who could forgive sins. He claimed to be Jesus Christ himself. And he died and he's still dead. Chances are, when he did meet the real Jesus, the real Jesus was none too appreciative of, of his works. It is in the real Jesus and his resurrection that we have hope of victory over sin. So why is Jesus' resurrection necessary and, and what would happen? We've kind of covered that a little bit, but again, Jesus would be a liar if he didn't rise from the dead. Again, we would be slaves in our sin and we would have no hope of redemption. No hope whatsoever. We could gather together. We could be like any other club, rotary, uh, cult, whatever you want it to be. And we could, we could rub each other's backs and encourage each other and do nice things and go out into the community. We could even do the generosity project. But if we do all of that and there is no resurrection, we're wasting time. We do those things because there is a resurrection. But couldn't people still be good enough? Didn't we, didn't we cover this a little bit? But couldn't people still be good enough? Don't, doesn't God grade on a curve just a little bit? Again, we could be as good as we want, but it's not going to make one shred of difference. It's adding to our pile. As it says, our righteousness is as filthy rags. It also says, Paul, Paul says, everything that I counted dear, all of his righteous works, everything that he did, he says this in Philippians 3, I count it as loss for the sake of knowing him. He's, he's, he's like, even indeed, I count it as dung. It's a big pile of dung. 
Now, I don't know about you, but any gift that someone gave me that said, hey, I worked really hard on this, and you're like, oh, man, what is it? What's it going to be? It's my birthday. I'm really excited. You brought me a gift, and you unwrap it, and it's a pile of dung, and they're like, well, what do you think? You're going to be like, oh, uh, next? <laughs> can, can, and you'll put it outside and, and never use it. You wouldn't even know how to use it. That's, that's the equivalency of us doing our works, of us thinking that I will be good enough. And here's the thing. I, I, this isn't just for people who think that they're saved by works. It's also people who are saved, who continue to do works and think that God is pleased with them and, and that they sin less and that is therefore their righteousness. Your righteousness starts with Jesus Christ. It continues with Jesus Christ and it ends. You never leave Jesus Christ for something else. Galatians is all about that. You don't start with the Spirit of God convicting you of sin, leading you to repentance and righteousness and salvation in Jesus, and then, all right, now I've got that, I've come in the door, and now everything I need to do, it's all on me. I need to do the works, I need to be performance-oriented. It's all about how I look on the external. Jesus talked with some people like that, and he called them whitewashed tombs. They were the Pharisees, if you recall, and he wasn't very pleased with them at all. We, we often think Jesus is a really um, nice, frilly guy in a dress with long, flowing, beautiful blonde hair that should be in a, a shampoo commercial. Um, we fail to remember the times when, to the Pharisees, he's sitting there and he's saying, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And I, I probably didn't put the emphasis on that. He's saying, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He's yelling at them. He's offending them. But he's true. And he says, basically, you're self-righteous. Your faith is not in God. Your faith is in yourself. Your works are disgusting. And you've, you're just a tomb that is dead inside with dead men's bones, but you've painted it pretty on the outside. That's some of us today. That's some of us. We started with Jesus, and then we assumed that now I must hop into the vehicle of works uh, to maintain my salvation. And you think, I've, I've done so many good works, I don't need to hear about sin anymore, in fact. Because sin is, is, you know, that's what I used to do. And some of you come to church and maybe you think that's what Christians are. You know, maybe some of you have even left church because you said, Christians are those people who are self-righteous, arrogant, and hypocrites. They act as if they never sin anymore, but then I see them at work. I see them out in the community or not in the community. Claiming to be doing good things, but they aren't. You're, you are at a great disadvantage if, if you fail, if you leave, if you drift away from Jesus. As we grow as Christians, we do sin less, but we don't sin less because we are earning something. We sin less because we are loving someone more. I always use this example like when I've, I've taught uh, the youth group and stuff, but I don't do nice things for my wife because I have a list of rules. And I'm like, okay, wake up, kiss her. Okay, check. Uh, take the trash out. Check. All right, I did all my stuff. Now you owe me. That is, man, if your relationship is like that, you've got issues. I do it because I love her. And yet I fail because I'm sinful. But God, who never fails, 
everything he has done, imparting his righteousness to us, giving us Jesus Christ, is because he loves us. When you understand grace in that that way, when you understand that Jesus loves me, you have a concept of, of grace that changes you. You do works not because you have to, because you get to. You rejoice because you recognize how much you've sinned. Do you guys remember the story Jesus asks his, uh, his disciples? He says, one man couldn't pay off his debt. And it was astronomical. Millions and millions of dollars. No chance in his lifetime of ever paying off his master the debt that he owed. And he came to the master and he begged and he pleaded. And the master said, you know what? I forgive you. I forgive you that. Then that same man went and he grabbed his buddy who owed him five bucks. And he said, he put him in a, a chokehold, you know. And he's like, pay up, pay up. And the master heard about it and he said, that is, that is no good. Jesus uses a similar example too. And he says, which of those two, if, if you were forgiven a billion dollars, and you were forgiven five dollars, someone was forgiven five, which one do you think is more grateful? Well, obviously, the person who was forgiven the billion, right? And here's, again, our sinful inclination is to go, well, I'm more of the one who's forgiven maybe 20 bucks. No, we are all forgiven the billion. (laughs) Infinite beyond that. A billion times infinity. As we grow closer to Jesus... We sin less, but we see our sin more, and we're more aware of those things that would break his heart. And we want to stop because we love him, because he has loved us first, because we are responding to Jesus, and we're saying, I I, I don't want to do anything that would be ungrateful. I recognize the debt that has been paid. I recognize that I am the one who's been forgiven much. See, we want to make it, well... I, I was a good person most of my life. I never did drugs, never slept around, waited till marriage uh, to, you know, have sex. And I, I did all of those things. Um, so I don't really need to be forgiven of as much. Here's the deal. It's not just in what you do. It's in the heart that you do it. Sin doesn't come from the outside. I, I'll use a little example here. I grew up uh, homeschooling for a good chunk of time. Um, no, not knocking it. it. It can be very good. It can be very helpful. But here's the mistake that many Christian parents make when they do it. They say, my kids are holy and righteous, and I don't want to put them in a public school where sin will somehow creep into them. Do you, you catch the little incorrect view? What they're really saying is, my kids don't need Jesus yet, and I want to keep them from that, because once they sin... Well, then it's all downhill from there, and they're going to have a lot of work to do. That is not uh, a gospel message that is good news whatsoever. Instead of their kids being trained up in in righteousness and recognizing grace and and understanding the gospel and then saying, Hey, kids, uh, I've trained you up in this. Um, Now I'm going to put you in situations that I believe uh, the Holy Spirit will empower you in, and you can be salt and light before people. You withdraw them. Now, there are other reasons. You, know, you don't need to come and list them off for me. Again, I homeschooled, so I, I, know, I know what it was. For me, a lot of homeschooling was slacking off, but that's beyond the point here. So, got a little, little story here for you. So when I was a kid, 
no more uh, than about five. My parents decided, let's, uh, they, they had some friends over, let's cook some lobster. And five-year-olds have never had lobster, usually. It's, it's a rarity. But I tried this lobster. I got some of it. It was buttery and good and delicious. And if you're allergic to shellfish, I feel sorry for you because you're missing out. It was so good. I, I don't know how much I ate, but I know I ate enough. I was so excited about this lobster. And then, for dessert, ice cream. If there's anything that a five-year-old who's newly discovered lobster might love more than lobster, it would be ice cream. If you ask any five-year-old, hey, would you like some ice cream? Uh, They've said yes before you finish your sentence. Would you like some? Yes, I would. Okay. So there I am. Take that first bite of ice cream, and I'm just like so looking forward to it. But what do I taste? I taste lobster. And I'm like, what's going on? My five-year-old mind cannot comprehend what is happening to me. And I'm, I'm eating this ice cream. And, and I start getting angry. And then I start to cry because I think, what have I done? I've damaged my taste buds. I'm never going to be able to eat ice cream again. This ice cream tastes like lobster. And if you've ever had lobster-flavored ice cream, you understand what I'm talking about. It was horrible. And I cried to my parents, and I was like, please, no, no, help me, what can I do? I'm like trying to wipe my tongue off, and I couldn't get rid of this this lobster flavor. Fortunately, my sense of taste came back, and I never took for granted that sweetness of of ice cream. There's a a new song that uh, we're going to introduce in a few weeks. Key line in, in it is, May my sin be bitter that Christ may be sweet. What a glorious thought that is, isn't it? Another way to put it, though, would be, may Christ be so sweet that everything else is absolutely bitter. Not uh, too unlike my little lobster-flavored ice cream incident. As we press into Jesus, we taste his sweetness and everything else fails. But... There might be things in your, in your life, there might be stuff that the lobster, that it tastes great at that moment, but now it's given you less of a desire, less of a passion for Jesus. And expanding that into this, our sin becomes bitter to us as we press into Jesus. And we see that victory over sin because of Jesus. Sin becomes less and less appealing. Many of us strive and struggle. We white-knuckle it as best we can to overcome sin, to overcome those addictions, to overcome those things that maybe it's not a sin necessarily, but for you it has become an idol. And we strive and we struggle and we sit there and we say, I'll just, I'll just be better. I'll try harder. Every time we mess up, oh, I'm so, so sorry, Lord. I vow to never do it again. And then we do it again. Our problem is we are fixated on the sin, trying to make those sweet things to, that are sweet to us at that moment bitter, rather than sweetening with the greatest sweetener of all, Jesus, the grace of God taking on what he has done for us, 
knowing him, having a knowledge of him and his resurrection and his saving grace and his, his glory and his goodness. And we absolutely fail because we don't know Jesus, really. We, again, we use him as the door to, to get into the faith, but, but we don't actually get to know him after that point. I want to challenge you guys in that. What sins have you been struggling with? What, what things are you wanting victory over? We have victory because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Nowhere does it say you have victory because you had an accountability group. You had victory because you went to church faithfully. You had victory because you were so devoted to your devotions. Instead of maybe devoted to Jesus through your devotions. See, grace frees us up from the hamster wheel of performance. Of just simply the external looking good and and making us um, self-righteous. It frees us up from the false worship of idols. It frees us up from the sins and the lies that we believe. The lies that the enemy puts before us. All because we go, I am chronically aware of my inability to live righteously, to perform good enough, to earn salvation. I am forgiven much. I recognize how much I have been forgiven a billion times infinity. And then I recognize that because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, I have victory over sin. Do you look with me again, starting in verse 20? It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things into subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that it is accepted uh, who put all things in subjection under him, being God the Father. And then it says, when all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. We have hope 
in this life and the life to come. Because in Christ, death is not the end of the line. So we have victory because of Christ, but we also have hope that this is not it. If this was it, if if all our hope in Christ was good for was this world, but then in the end, it's all worthless, what's the point? There are even some today who, who want to take away the, the punch, I guess you could say, of the truth of God's word. And they want to reduce hell to something that doesn't exist or it's, it's more of a purgatory and it's only temporal and eventually everyone will get saved. And again, though, what is the point? Why follow Jesus if, if I have no choice in the matter anyway and he's going to save me anyway? I might as well say... Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So we have hope in this life and the life to come because Christ has conquered death. And death is not the end of the line. But Paul knows something here. He says, if we hold in our thinking a view of this life and the life after. Not just this life, what Christ has done for us here and now, but if we also hold a view that after this life there's nothing, this very much impacts the way we live now. This thinking is like a cancer that it messes up both this life and the life to come. So, how does Jesus' resurrection change our way of living? The very fact that he rose again. How does that change our living versus if he had just died and, and, you know, again, had been a good moral example for us to follow? How does that change our way of living? Well, the first thing is, it gives our life meaning. So we see in the text there, it says, apart from Jesus rising and giving us life, uh, this life, it really has no purpose or meaning. But his resurrection ascribes dignity, value, and worth to us because he has purchased us with his blood, right? And his blood is absolutely the most valuable thing. His blood is what cleanses us from sin. His blood is what gives us our value. His blood is what gives us the grace that we don't deserve. See, really what this does is it takes the monkey off our back of performance and it frees us up to simply love. It frees us up to respond to the gospel and live it out every moment of every day. And we can, we can live in a way that's it's filled with hope and it's filled with light. I don't know about you, but again, if the, if the hamster wheel of performance is my... Uh, rule of measure for how saved I am and how, um, how much God loves me is based on how well I perform for him, that's not really good news. And that's why a lot of people don't like Christians and Christianity. Because we come to them and we try and clean them up and get them worthy enough to be saved. And we come to them and we try and, and convince them that they just need to be good and and 
um, if they would stop swearing, stop smoking, stop drinking, stop sleeping around, then everything would be better. But you know what? What is missing from that equation? Jesus. We've taken Jesus out and we've replaced the gospel with moralism. There was one uh, study done. And in the end, it concluded that what we have for most of us is therapeutic, deistic moralism. Therapeutic, therapy, deistic, God, moralism. All it is is we look at the scripture and we go, all right, now what do I need to do to, to impress God today? What do I need to do to be good enough today? What do I need to do to show everyone else that I'm good enough? We don't actually have a faith in Jesus Christ. We have a faith that is more based on performance. It's based on the law. And so you see this permeate Christian culture where the teaching is more about what I can do rather than responding to what Jesus Christ has already done. That gives life no meaning. That, that, is, that is exhausting. Again, how does Jesus' resurrection change our way of living? By showing that suffering is only temporal. If we live as if this life is all there is, we are going to have a very difficult time suffering. Not only does Jesus give meaning to our life, but he also gives meaning to our suffering. But if you don't understand this, you're going to spend most of your energy and time trying to escape suffering. You're going to blame other people that it's their fault. You're going to really, you're elevating people above God in his sovereign control. And you're saying, I, have, I don't have anything left to learn I don't have anything, any sin left to repent of. I don't have anything within me that actually needs to be dealt with. This is all just coincidence. And here's a key thing too. is In our suffering, sometimes it is something God has chosen to come upon us. And sometimes it is something that is allowed. And that's hard for us to grasp. We wrestle with that. But it is the truth. And we need to remember that because we will always reject that suffering. And we will always try and seek the path of least resistance. If we don't understand that our suffering is temporal, Jesus has suffered, and the servant is not greater than his master. We, we then can turn our suffering into our way of relating to our God. If Jesus suffered... And yeah, he suffered as a man and he lived and he was familiar with all our weakness. But here's also the hardest suffering, I think, was bearing all of the sins of this world on the cross. Enduring that. We have nothing on that. You could go out in the street and and get mugged and then get hit by a car and then get your arms chopped off. And still, you wouldn't even scratch the surface of understanding what it is to bear the sins of the entire world. Our suffering can be suffered well. It can be learned from in light of the resurrection. Because we know, yes, 
I don't like this, but I can rejoice in it because I have hope in the resurrection. Because Jesus rose again, and he did what he said he would do, and now what he also said is he promised that I would do the same. With my faith in him, I know this is not the end of the line. There's meaning in this suffering now, and there will be joy far beyond any amount of suffering that I can deal with right here and now. Again, how does Jesus' resurrection change our way of living? As we see Paul say there, it makes our labor in Christ worth it. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all the good things that we do in the name of Jesus, I'm not talking about works to earn salvation, but simply responding to him, they're worthless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead. What is the point of living for someone who is not living? What is the point of dying for someone who's still dead? So not only is our suffering given worth and purpose, but our labor in Christ. And your labor may endure suffering, but not all the time. Maybe the labor is simply something as simple as spinning the week, preparing a, a message, a sermon. Maybe it's tending to the kids in the nursery or the kids in the classroom. Maybe it's cleaning this church. But to be quite honest, if there is no resurrection of the dead, that is absolutely a waste of time. But we minister because Christ has ministered to us, even loving us to the point of laying down his own life and rising again. Without this view in focus, our labor will become just that. It will be laborious. It will be exhausting. It will be... We won't see the point. And if that's you, and you're, you're used to, you know, I've been cleaning this church, or I've been tending those dang kids, and I've been, I've been serving and doing all this stuff around here, and I'm not getting any thanks. You've gotten your eyes off of Jesus. You want, you want your recognition now? Okay. Jesus talked about that. He said, hey, those people who are doing it for their own glory, they got their reward right now. Their reward in heaven doesn't exist. Do not sell yourself short. Do not let your sinful nature take advantage of the glory now and miss out on the reward later. Be serving Jesus because you love Jesus. Before I, uh, before service, I was talking with Kevin, and he shared uh, an account with me. Uh, there was a pastor who he had just put on that be praying for this person. Uh, hey, this is what just happened. Uh, apparently. Uh, some Muslim men in a Muslim country took a guy who would not renounce Christ and they cut his head off. They didn't just do it, though, quick. They, they took a small knife and, and just took their time. And they did it all on video and they were all screaming, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. God is great. 
their God. That wouldn't be worth it. It wouldn't make us die well if, if we didn't believe that there was a resurrection. That is something the world would look at and they would they go, why didn't he just renounce Jesus? All you had to do was say, Allah is God and not Jesus. It's because this guy had a hope beyond this life. He had a hope in the resurrection. Look in uh, the end there of... Uh, Starting in verse 32, he says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, if this isn't true, if if Jesus isn't raised, or if he is raised, and you simply are not living like you believe it, it's going to show. He says there, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Here's here's what I'm getting at, guys. I believe that in our church, there are many of us here who, let's just, I'll put it this way. If, If we were on trial for being a Christian... I don't know that there would be any evidence in our life. And I'm not just talking about you don't do good things or anything like that. I'm saying you have no knowledge of God. And not just a, I know about him. You don't believe it. You come and you hear these wonderful, encouraging messages. And you think that you, you have gotten something out of them because you're like, I learned a new fact today. I didn't know that the Greek word for blah, 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 blah was blah, blah, blah. That is good. I have done my part. What is the point of that? The real thing that it all boils down to is Jesus Christ. If he is not raised, and if, furthermore, if you don't actually live or believe that he was raised, you won't live like you believe that he was raised. You will hear stories like, like the man getting killed, getting his head cut off with basically the equivalent of a pocket knife while everyone screams around him. You'll hear that and you'll go, that was stupid. He, that was how could you, why would anyone want to let that happen to them? I wouldn't. I think it, it reveals to us our heart, our level of how real our faith is in what Jesus has done for us. Because our knowledge of God, it shapes everything. If we don't live like we believe that God exists we won't behave we won't if sorry rather if we don't believe these things truly we aren't going to live it out and and i want to challenge you guys in this this is not a rah rah do better go out there and get them message this is is jesus real to you is he more than just letters on a page or a picture an image a guy in a flowy robe Is he actually your savior? And if he is your savior, what does he require of you? What does he want of you? He wants you to know him. And I guarantee you this, if if you are 
caught in sin at this point, it's because somewhere along the way you've reduced Jesus to something less than he is. You're not seeing him as he truly is. You're not surrendered to him. Or maybe you're just arrogantly choosing to ignore what you know to be true. This is Paul's charge to the church at Corinth. Wake up. You know, you've, you've been in your drunken stupor of, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And then that's it, and so there's nothing left. Are you living as if there is no hope? There are a couple ways to tell. You might be really depressed and, uh, well, whatever, everything's gone. But you also might just have all your hope fixed in this life. What can I acquire? What things can I use? What stuff can be mine? How can I uh, reach the top? How can I climb the ladder of corporate success? How can I obtain the most glory, be the most famous, hide the most, be the most comfortable? What is it? If we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, we are most to be pitied, but we don't have to be. So this morning as we're, as we're wrapping up, we're going to respond to Jesus in worship. The guys can come on up, the worship team. We're going to just have a few songs. We're going to... We're going to love Jesus, and we're going to say, Hey, Jesus, I recognize that I've reduced you to something that you aren't. I want to I see your greatness for who you truly are. I want to know you because you loved me first. You laid down your life for me, and I want to respond to you. This isn't about you going out and doing better. This is about you simply coming to Jesus. We have gotten off track, I believe. I believe as a, as a church, as, as individuals, and as a body, many of the issues that we face are simply because we just don't really believe what we say we believe. And I'm not saying try harder, try to believe more. I'm just saying let's actually find out this stuff. Let's really press into knowing Jesus because he is right there. He is waiting. You cannot exhaust him. In this life, you will never plumb the depths of the knowledge of God. So let's take some time. Let's respond in worship to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we just pray that our response to your word, Lord, that it would be, Lord, that we would taste the sweetness of Jesus, Lord, that our sin would be bitter and Christ would be so sweet. Lord, if our sin is sweet to us, it is not because Christ isn't sweet. It's because we have refused him. We have not believed him. We've believed the lie. We've chosen false gods. We've chosen other things. Lord, even like the church in Corinth, all of the problems that they were having could very well have been rooted in this one fact that they they didn't believe in the resurrection. And that has fruit in every other area of their life. Lord, I pray that we would live heavenly-minded, that, that we would respond to your spirit right now. Lord, you'd fill us afresh, that we would have a hope that is so much more than, will I be able to pay the bills here in this life? Will I be able to make it in this life? I hope I can. No, Lord, we will have a hope that, that says, I 
No, my Redeemer lives, and therefore I will live too with him one day in eternity. My sinful body will be done away with. My temporal house will be torn down. And I will be given a permanent one that is eternal. Lord, that is what we should be living in light of. Lord, the promise of that. The salvation that you purchased us.